0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, for our Old Testament Scripture reading. Here the prophet speaks of the future and the glory of the people of God. Isaiah, chapter 60, we'll read verses 1 to 7. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall, they shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my house, my beautiful house. Uh, Now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, sermon text this morning will look at verses 13 and 13 to 16, Uh, but what I'd like us to consider this morning is that this section that I think so many of us are familiar with, that uh, we learned in, in summer camp and Sunday school with Uh, the songs of letting our light shine, I think we need properly to see its place within this sermon that Jesus preaches. That this here is the capstone of the blessings that Jesus pronounces upon the people of God. So let us begin by reading once more in verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 16. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is God's Word. Let us pray and ask that He would bless the reading of it. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the Word that You've given to us this morning. We pray that You would strengthen our hearts as we hear our Savior speak through the preaching of the Word. Focus our attention that we might be comforted and encouraged to walk the ways you have called us to walk, and to believe those things you have called us to believe. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what does it look like to be a Christian witness in the world? And it's a question that the church has wrestled with for perhaps the entirety of its Existence. It's certainly a question that Protestantism has tried to address over and over for the past 500 years, and it's a good question. But we find, as we survey the landscape of the different, uh, as we might call it, flavors of Protestantism, the different denominations, that we will find a variety of answers. Uh, for some, the Christian witness simply entails going off the grid living on your own, being divorced and separated from the world like an ostrich who sticks his head in the sand. For others, being a Christian witness necessitates having an aggressive personality and a bullhorn and a picket sign. And still for others, being a Christian witness means modifying the worship service that it might look like in some instances a nightclub, to make it more fashionable so that those who are seekers might come in. Of course, there are a variety of other ways in which this question has been asked. But I think we can make the question more pointed. When it comes to evangelism, what is it that we're supposed to do? I think we have all witnessed, no pun intended, a variety of methods and programs catered to us as the only effective method of evangelization how many of us have sat through a summer series or program or read the latest book that gives some type of gimmick saying this is the way forward the church has gotten it wrong for two thousand years but now after reading this book you will have all your problems answered well, i think some of these are not bad questions and not all of the methods are bad though i do think that some methods perhaps are worse than others, but I also think that we have perhaps overcomplicated what it means to be a light shining in darkness. This morning our Savior addresses the matter of Christian witness, but rather than focusing on gimmicks and parlor tricks, the accent falls on a matter of Christian character as He calls us simply to be what He has made us to be in Him. As part of the new creation. And so often we think that the Beatitudes end with verse 12, but might I suggest to you this morning that verses 13 to 16 form the climax and the capstone of the blessings that our King pronounces upon the citizens of heaven. These blessings find their culmination in the overflow and the outworking of the Spirit who shines the light of the gospel in our hearts that our lives might be transformed, that Christ might shine His light through us to those around us who continue to dwell in deep darkness. We can summarize the great truths of this passage in this manner, that you have become salt and light. Now be what you are, wherever you are. We can break this passage up into two considerations. First, we'll consider the matter and the metaphor of salt. And then secondly, we'll consider the matter and metaphor of light. Salt in verse 13 and then light in verses 14 to 16. As we continue to study this gospel, we find that our Savior loves teaching and preaching using word pictures. Consider how His teaching does not come to us in a dry, dusty, academic manner. Rather, He speaks to us forcefully, sometimes even tersely. Using vivid imagery that forces us to stop and to think about what he's saying. I think we are so familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it's so easy to have our eyes glazed over when it comes to passages like this to think that we know what Jesus is already saying, so therefore we don't have to pay attention. You know, that's the very warning that Hebrews gives to the church, isn't it? We better pay closer attention lest we drift away. But as we consider Jesus' statement here, and by the way, what he's saying here is not a command. It's, it's a continued declaration. You are salt. What does it mean? You know, if you were to ask a, a teenager on the street today, what does it mean to be salty? You'll perhaps get an answer that runs antithetical to the very thing that Jesus is talking about here. And if we were to rewind back the clock, a generation or two ago, and you hear people speaking of someone being a salt of the earth person, they would mean something very different from what people mean today when they speak of somebody being salty. And yet, might I suggest to you that the category, the paradigm through which we are to understand Jesus' words is not contemporary culture, but the scriptures itself. We cannot be content to interpret Jesus' word pictures. Against the backdrop of how people use such imagery today. I'd like us to model what it looks like to consider and to contemplate God's Word. Because that's what Jesus is calling us to do. When He speaks in these riddles, these word pictures, that, that Greek word there for, for riddles we'll see in, in, in future chapters, of course, is the word parable. The reason Jesus speaks in those ways, could also be translated as a proverb. It's intended to force us to slow down and meditate. And might I suggest to you that that is the biblical method of reading Scripture. It's not speed reading. It's contemplation. And taking the time to consider what it is that's being said. So what is it that Jesus means here when He says that we are salt? Of course, I think our immediate response is to consider the Old Testament. That's a good response. So one of the first things that we need to do is to see the New Testament in light of its broader Old Testament context. The Old Testament is the foundation upon which the New Testament rests. But when we begin to look at the use of salt in the Old Testament, we find that there are several shades of meaning. You know, In some places, salt is representative of consecration. You read Leviticus or Numbers, salt was to be sprinkled upon the grain offerings that were offered to God as a symbol of those offerings being consecrated to God. If that's the case, is when Jesus says here that we are salt of the earth, is He saying here that in our witness we are somehow consecrating the world to God? That's the case. What would that have to do with the, the second word picture that our Savior gives when He says, Consequently, that we are light. Another option that we have for us that we see in the Old Testament is that salt is seen to be a preservative. Something that impedes the growth of yeast or leaven in bread. Uh, So often, uh, in, in so many places in the Scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, though not in every place, yeast becomes a word picture for sin. That's the case, is Jesus saying here that when we are the salt of the earth, that we, by our uh, saltiness, are somehow keeping the forces of darkness at bay. That by living our lives in a godly manner, we are in some sense having a preserving influence in the world. You know, One advantage to this particular interpretation is that it seems to accord more tightly with the very thing that Jesus talks about next when He describes us as as light shining in the darkness. Just as uh, a a light uh, in the kitchen at night might keep the rodents at bay, is Jesus saying here that by us shining the light, it keeps the darkness at bay. Certainly, there's some truth to that. We find that in other places. Uh, Reformed theologians would speak in one sense of what we call the second use of the law, that there is a restraining influence that is kept by having certain laws on the books. In one sense, uh, if we were to take salt like that, we would say that, uh, that our saltiness keeps the world from further moral Decay and degeneration. And true as that might be, and true as we might find that in other places, I don't necessarily think that that is Jesus' emphasis here. One of the things we have to ask ourselves when we read the scriptures is how does Jesus use the metaphor, not just against the Old Testament backdrop, but even within the immediate contrast? The immediate context. Notice the contrast here. If you look carefully at verse 13, where does the accent fall when Jesus is describing salt? Is He describing its preserving quality? Is He describing, describing its consecrative character? No, rather we see that Jesus is describing salt and using it in terms of the flavor that it gives. Notice that. If the salt becomes tasteless, if the salt loses its flavor, that is what Jesus is talking about here. Here, the salt's usefulness consists in its zest. You know, I love, uh, used to love watching those old cooking shows on PBS, right? Not the new ones where you feel like you're watching a game show where the, the, the camera has to change angles like every two seconds. There's these loud music, I, I just like watching, the, the. I don't remember the guy's name, the old Cajun guy on PBS where like, you're watching him cook a pot roast in real time. It's very meditative, it's very contemplative. But I mean to consider how ridiculous it would be if you turn on the TV and uh, this particular uh, cooking show individual has this tremendous roast and he says, all right, now you need to pour this salt on the roast, but then you need to salt the salt because the first layer of salt that you put doesn't have any taste to it. You're kind of left scratching your head and Go, why are you even putting the tasteless salt there to begin with? Right? The, the purpose of salt is that it's flavorful. Salt is good. I don't care what my doctor says. Right? There's a reason why McDonald's french fries are so good. It's because it's like 80% salt. It's delicious. It might not be as fancy as saffron or cilantro, but there is a certain flavor, as common as salt is, as cheap as it is. It provides a certain zest to the meal that you have, and here our Savior compares the usefulness of the citizens of heaven on earth to that zesty flavor of salt. Think of what Paul says to the church of Colossae: "Let your speech be seasoned with salt." With salt, in other words, let there be gracious speech. Let there be gracious words, favorable speech. That's where the where the word grace means is favor. You, you could call it the, uh, the the flavor of favor. That is what we are supposed to do. Our lives are to give a foretaste to the watching world of the abundant life that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard in terms of storytelling, show, don't tell. Of course, we are told to tell the Gospel, but our lives itself should also show the goodness of our lord why is it that the psalms say taste and see that the lord is good why is it that this here sacrament that is given to the people of god is one that speaks to our taste buds here our savior describes the manner of christian living as something that exudes again the emphasis not necessarily being on the preserving aspect but the people looks That people will look at your life and the life of your family and they will say, there is something different. There is real life here. I can taste it. These blessings that Jesus pronounces on His church that we had read uh, and, and worked our way through over the past several weeks of meekness and humility and peacemaking. People look at that and they say, that's so counterintuitive to everything I know. It's different. I can't make sense of it. It's like trying to nail jello, jello to a wall, but I want more. And Jesus says to the people, the kingdom of God, you're the salt of the earth. Let your lives exude the rich aroma the savor of Christ who has by his mercy and in his grace caused us to look like him and causes us to look like him more and more even in our misery even in our suffering remember that pattern that we've seen as we looked at the Beatitudes that movement of humiliation to exaltation of poverty and spirit to, 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 to comfort, uh, 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 of, of grief to comfort, of peacemaking to being called the sons of God. Over and over and over again, our lives, even when we are in the death throes, and having that proper response in a life that, submit, that is submitted to Christ, it puts off a flavorful aroma. As Paul will describe elsewhere here, Jesus using the language of salt. You see, Jesus is not only addressing the matter of Christian witness, he's also addressing the manner of Christian witness. Here is a life that is conformed to the image of Christ that exudes the rich aroma and savor of Christ that people might taste and see that he is good. This becomes more pointed in our next metaphor of light shining in the midst of darkness. You see that here in verses 14 to 16. Not only does he call us salt, but our Savior also calls us light. All right, we all know the, the song from summer camp as kids. You know, Hide it under a bushel? Nope. I'm going to let it shine. And consider this. You have a little, a small child who's afraid of the dark. And he cries from his bedroom in the middle of the night and says, Mommy, Mommy, please come. Please turn a light on in the hallway. Please turn on my nightlight. How many of you would turn on the nightlight only to to turn around and then go to the garage and come back with a roll of duct tape and a brown paper bag and try to cover up that nightlight with a brown paper bag? That's actually pretty cruel. And it does a great disservice to the purpose of what the light is for. The purpose of the light is to shine in the darkness, to scare away the monsters, as it were. When you turn on the light, it's impossible for the light to remain hidden. Have you ever noticed? There is no night so black that it will drown out and snuff out the light. It is always the light that overcomes the darkness, not the other way around. The purpose of the light is to shine. That is what it is. You don't ever have to see a candle grunting and growing trying to be a candle. It's simply doing what it has been made to be and so often in scripture we see darkness as a metaphor for a a, a lack of moral clarity and light being a picture of godly living same is true here when jesus tells us that we are the light in verse 16 he explains and spells out for us what that light is it is verse 16 look let your light shine that the world might see your good works There's that correlation there between light and those good works. In other words, light is that word pictured as that riddle, that parable in miniature for Christian witness, our good deeds. And this imagery of light is not the first time that our Savior has used this word image. You remember in chapter 4 when um, Matthew cites the book of Isaiah saying that the, the work of Jesus is summarized. And described in fulfillment of all that Isaiah had promised, that those who had dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. What is it that led the Magi to see Jesus in, the, uh, in his home as a little child? It was a guiding light. It was a guiding star. Light is so important here. And just as Jesus describes himself Elsewhere is the light of the world. Now, He pronounces this blessing upon the citizens of heaven, saying that those who are united to Him are now also light. As the moon reflects the light of the sun, He who is light itself, we are called to reflect that light and so shine in the darkness. That light is a metaphor for our good works. Those, that those works might reflect the light of our Savior, the humility, the mercy, the peace, all those other blessings that we spent the past two months considering. I'm not saying that those good works are meritorious. Rather, this is the fruit of righteousness. This is the fruit of what it looks to be blessed by King Jesus. As Jesus comes to bless His people, to make His people look like Him. We are not saved by our good works, Paul says. But he does say that we are saved that we might do good works that we might walk in those good works which God has prepared beforehand do all things without grumbling or disputing paul writes that you might be blameless and innocent children of god without blemish in the blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world over and over again we see this image that's so easy to miss out on because we take it for granted And yet, that imagery of of, of the shining light is a picture of what it means to walk in holiness and repentance and truth. And why is it that we do these things? Jesus says, do it so that the world might see that they might glorify God. In other words, the purpose of the Christian witness is that others might taste of the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ and put their faith in him as well, and therefore glorify him. That's evangelism. To be what God has made us to be as part of the new creation. And yet, notice the pattern that we see here as Jesus says, uh, He begins with that, that, that great declaration You are light. Therefore, what? Let your light shine. Be what you are. I've already made you light. Be it. This is not optional. This is not like purchasing an add-on to your new vehicle, like buying a new set of rims. Just as it is impossible for a lit candle not to shine its light, so it is impossible for the citizen of heaven not to be poor in spirit, not to grieve over the sin and misery of the world, not to be meek and humble, not to long for righteousness, not to show mercy, not to make peace, not to endure persecution with gladness and joy. It's impossible for a Christian not to do these things. Sure, we might do these things imperfectly. And over the course of our life, the Spirit continues to work that work in our hearts as it continues to mold us and shape us to look like Christ in His sufferings. that we might be with Him in His glory. But nevertheless, what we find here is a descriptor of what it looks like to be the people of God. It is essential to what it means to be a Christian. And yet, I want you to see this as good news because it is essential. This is not merit-based theology. Jesus is not saying you have to do these things in order to be a Christian. He says, I am blessing you, therefore I will make you look like this. The great comfort that this has is that we don't have to grunt and groan to strive to do it. He has already made us light, therefore be what you are. Just as a candle simply shines. That's what it does. It's its job. Jesus calls us to be what you are. He says you already are the light of the world. Be what you are. Don't resist that new creation that I have made you to be. Let the light shine. There's no need for flashy gimmicks. There's no need for artificial methods of Christian witness. We should always be zealous to share the Gospel. Um, but I think sometimes we overthink it thinking that we need some type of gimmick or strategy to make it work. Here, Jesus is simply saying, be what I've called you to be. Of course, that means speaking up at times, but sometimes people just know it by the life that you live in those unidentifiable ways. I think I've told the story before. B.B. Warfield recounts this story and how there were two soldiers, I believe it was during the Civil War, and one's walking down the street, and one man looks at the other soldier and says, what is the chief end of man? And the man turns around and says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He says, I knew you were a catechism, man. I could tell it by the look, by the way you carry. I don't know what that carriage looks like, but apparently one soldier was able to tell it about another Just a few weeks ago when I was coming back from a very long uh, uh, general assembly, I'm I'm sitting in the the airport in in Philadelphia. I got there around four or five hours before uh, I was actually supposed to check in. So I'm actually sitting out front and I'm just sitting there, just wearing a ball cap and a hoodie, uh, reading, you know, just a, a fiction book. And an older gentleman walks up to me and says, excuse me, sir, are you a minister? And I'm like looking around seeing if I left my name tag on. I said, how did you know? He says, I could tell just by your look. I don't know what that look is. And isn't that the same with Christians? The way in which we work with honesty and integrity, the way in which we display mercy and humility, the way in which we seek to make peace, people will look and say, there is something different about you. Wherever it is, whether it might be in school, it might be in the workplace, it might be uh, uh, in, in the neighborhood or the community. Notice the different uh, places that Jesus sets the light. It's sometimes it's in the home, in the house. Sometimes it's the light on a hill. Sometimes it's the salt on the earth. Wherever you are, be it in the home or on the hill or on the mountain, in the city, in the countryside, the highways and byways, just be what you are. I'm not saying that we should not think more, uh, more thoughtfully about how we can evangelize people here in Corvallis, but we shouldn't also overcomplicate matters. We pray that the Lord would use the light that He has placed in our hearts to draw others to taste and see that the Lord is good. The world dwells in darkness. And when they see the light, they see what goodness really looks like, the Lord uses that to draw men, women, and children to Himself. That's really the gospel message here. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Be what you are. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we ask that you would give us great courage that as you continue to mold us and to shape us to look like our Savior, Uh, that You would use that even when we are in the grocery store or speaking with our neighbors or friends or family, to let the light of Christ shine, that we might tell the good news of the One who has delivered us from our sin and our misery. Even as the world laughs and taunts, even as it ridicules and insults, even as the world is merciless in its behavior, even as it boasts in its sin and its misery, we pray that the light of Christ that shines in us would show that there is something much different, something much more beautiful, something much better. There is a better world that awaits. That there is a Savior who is better than we could ever conceive. That there is a God who is merciful and gracious. And that through the light that shines, you would draw those who dwell in darkness into the kingdom of light your beloved Son. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.